Well, uh, thank you for the uh, welcome. I've really enjoyed uh, getting to meet, especially some of the men yesterday at the, Bre- at the Man Cave, uh, and enjoying my first visit to the state of New York. So uh, uh, it's uh, really appreciate the opportunity uh, to come and share with you this morning. And uh, I'll start off by telling you a little bit about myself, uh, because, you know, that's, that's part of it. But I'm uh, from Los Angeles in California uh, originally. But when I was seven years old, my parents became missionaries. And we went to the Philippines. And uh, back then it was a three-week boat trip out. A lot of things have changed in the world. But uh, So I grew up in the Philippines other than when we'd come back on furlough until I completed high school. And uh, when I was in high school, my senior year, I was planning to uh, join the Navy. I'd received a scholarship to study nuclear engineering and come out as an officer and was looking forward to that. But I was helping one of my dad's friends at a retreat center uh, that he was just starting, and I was working in the kitchen, and he was running a retreat for doctors and nurses and such. And after washing some pots and pans, I came out on a Sunday morning and he was telling these doctors and nurses that what they were doing was important, but that the kingdom of God really needed people in full-time Christian service. And I don't know how that affected anybody else, but the Holy Spirit used that to call me uh, into full-time ministry. And uh, I don't think there's a pastoral bone in my body, but, you know, there's a lot of different ways to serve in the kingdom. And I thought I could be a missionary. And so I I sort of uh, uh, yielded my life to him then as a 17-year-old to uh, to serve him in the field. Came back to California, went to Bible school where I met my my wife, and uh, during that time I began to feel um, attracted to church planting. So in 1986, we uh, went to the Philippines. We had our the first of our four children was six months old. We went to the Philippines and began uh, a career uh, that I suppose would be planting uh, churches. And uh, I was ready to do this for the, for the rest of my life. As it happens, we were in the Philippines for 24 years. And we, uh, we served there really until my mother and Carol's mother both we're starting to have some struggles, and we, we realized that we had a responsibility to, to uh, help care for them, and we came back to California in 2010. But during those 24 years in the Philippines, I was involved in 12 church planting projects. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I made the right call. This was, this really is, I feel, uh, what God put in my heart is uh, church planting. But I've had to defend that choice in various contexts. Not, not anybody being very hostile, but, you know, why? Why church planting? I want to address that 
for a little bit. Um, I, to start with, I just got to say, I love the church. I love the local church. And I've seen local churches in many forms, many shapes and sizes. Mega churches, house churches, uh, trendy churches, uh, old-fashioned churches. And, and I just love what happens in any church. Certainly, we know that church is important in Scripture. Uh, the church is described as the body of Christ, with, uh, with Christ as the head of the church, and uh, the church is his body, and, and, and Paul would go on and talk about how we're all members of the body, and we all have different roles, and if one of us hurts, the whole body hurts, and we're all when we're all healthy and working together, the church, you know, is healthy and, and grows. And, uh, you know, that's the reality. This is not a, uh, 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 a good idea. But the church is the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Right? And uh, that's the reality. Also, the church is described as the bride of Christ. Now, I love my bride. Some people, you know, they, you know, they could take her or leave her, I guess. I mean, uh, it, you know, it's, there's somebody for everybody, right? And she's the one for me. And boy, uh, if you pick on her, it hurts me, right? And uh, if you complain about her cooking, you know, I'm thinking of, of all the things to, to focus on. You know, whatever, whatever. Christ loves the church the way we love our brides. The way we love our spouses. And uh, uh, he delights hanging out with his bride and walking with us and, and growing through life together with us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He, he's sacrificial for our sake, you know, and to make her holy. I mean, we need that, don't we? We don't start off. We don't start off holy. In fact, a lot of people would say we don't end up holy. But in, in the eyes of Christ and, and in the, the eyes of God, we are made holy, cleansed by the washing with water through the word. And he presents himself, presents us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blem- blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, you guys know each other pretty well, and I know, I know that you're questioning some of that about one another, but again, that's truth. That's biblical truth that we, as a church, grace life is holy and blameless in the eyes of Jesus. And boy, if, if that's how God sees us, then I don't want to be a hater. You know what I'm saying? I love the church. I look at bodies of believers and I try to see what God sees. Uh, The church is also God's way of revealing his wisdom to spiritual powers. Uh, Paul said that his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The angels are sitting back watching what's happening 
as the church, the kingdom of God, spreads. The church is the only entity that has all the gifts of the Spirit and all of the offices or Christian roles. So, you know, I have spiritual gifts and I have abilities and talents and passions, but, you know, they're, they're in a compartment. They're kind of focused and I need to work with others. And over, over my ministry, I've learned about what specific kind of team members really help activate me and, and the kind of people that I really uh, support and, and kind of uh, serve as a force multiplier for. We need each other. But the church has all the gifts. The church, uh, the church is what, what does it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? And the answer, of course, is no. Uh, We don't all. But in the church, all of that stuff happens as the Spirit leads. The church is the only institution that Jesus left behind. You know, there's some important institutions. I, I appreciate the family. Uh, you know, government has its role. But uh, Jesus said, on this rock, speaking to Peter, I will build my church. So this was something that Jesus uh, was intentional about. And then uh, another word picture that I find in the New Testament is that uh, churches, local churches, are lampstands in heaven among which Jesus walks. John saw this vision of seven lampstands with uh, one like the Son of Man, he said, uh, walking among them. And th- this uh, person was identified as our Lord. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. The mystery of the seven lampstands, John goes on to say, are the seven churches to whom uh, John was uh, passing on some messages in Revelation. Just like churches are meant to be lights that shine into the darkness of this world, in heaven, churches are, are, are lampstands, and, and Jesus is right there in the middle. And w- one of the things I love about this, by the way, is these weren't seven good churches. These weren't seven uh, model churches that you're going to read about in a magazine somewhere. These churches included one that lost their first love and included uh, one that was lukewarm and included... One that was really picking up on some some false teaching. But they were churches. And Jesus loved them. And he loved them enough to warn them and to work with them. But, you know, I can relate. I, you know, I have to worry maybe a little bit about pride comparing to some of these churches. But, you know, I can relate. These are regular churches like the churches I've seen. Because most churches I've seen have problems. 
and uh, uh, probably not here at Grace Life, but maybe some of you have, have experienced this uh, other, other places. But to know that, that it's the real kind of churches that I experience that Jesus loves and among whom he walks, that, that is meaningful. And, and, and I just try to adopt this same perspective on the local church. Not uh, as a church planter, it can be easy to get critical, like, "Oh, what would I tweak?" Or, you know, "What, what? How can we do things?" But, but as a person, I want to open my eyes and see each local church as the bride, as as the body of Jesus, as something holy and blameless that Jesus is building that has meaning and purpose. So so I love the church. But it's a little it's it's easy to defend the church but church planting. You know that list of of roles and offices that uh, Paul gave church planter wasn't there. And uh why Church planting. Why did I start to identify as a church planter something that's uh, maybe not biblical? Right. That's that's the question. Uh, C. Peter Wagner and, and I had class with him, in, including classes about church planting at Fuller Seminary. Uh, he has said he's written that the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. And as a young, inexperienced missionary, I really embrace that. Uh, part of my personality is is to want to, uh, you could say it positively, I want to leverage uh, the resources that I have and to make the biggest impact with, the, with what's available. Or you could say it negatively, like I don't want to do anything I don't have to do if I can accomplish something with less, you know. But uh, there's that strategic element of my personality that that if I planted churches, I would be able to do evangelism. Because I am not an evangelist. I'm not a mass evangelist. I'm not much of a personal evangelist. But my experience has been, I can go out and do the things to plant a church, and the Holy Spirit just uh, works through that, you know. I realize that you don't have to be, you guys know this, you don't have to be a gifted evangelist to tell somebody about Jesus. You don't have to be, you don't have to have a great testimony. You know, my testimony, when I was nine years old, I told my missionary dad, you know, this stuff, this applies to me too, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. You know, that's just... Not one of those things you uh, tell people in stadiums, right? But when you share your story, when you share Jesus' story, the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to do, uh, to do his job. He loves to work through his church. And uh, so, so wanting to, to make a difference... I I got into uh, church planting. Uh, but let's take a look 
about what the Bible kind of says about church planting or, or implies. And I want to start off um, with what, what does Jesus say about churches? And it's not much. Matthew sixteen eighteen, on this rock, I will build my church. You know, that's kind of, that's not a church. That's the church universal. So we don't get a lot of support there. And then in uh, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus uh, just kind of almost a throwaway offhanded comment mentions the word church. He says, talking about, you know, church discipline, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Well, okay, that's talking probably about a local church. But, uh, you know, that's one of the talking about church discipline. I mean, do we even do that uh, in, the, in the 21st century? You know, often, often not. Hey, but at least we haven't lost our first love or go after the Nicolaitans or something. And those two times are the only thing I found in the Gospels where Jesus even uses the word church. Well, we get a, bit, we get a real different picture when we go to the book of Acts. And this is what I want to focus on here for a little bit. Uh, we're all familiar, I suppose, with the Great Commission. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? Or the way Luke um, describes it in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses. And uh, in the, the churches and the culture I grew up in, these were talking about evangelism, sharing the gospel and bringing bringing people to the Lord. But a curious thing is, in the book of Acts, Luke gives us that commission in the first chapter, and in the second chapter, uh, a church gets started. Uh, we, have the, uh, we have the whole Pentecost experience where the, the disciples are sitting around and praying and waiting for the... I found this on the web for us Thank Check you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to, uh, you know, speak and, uh, uh, fill them. And, uh, they, they go out, they start sharing about Jesus and all of a sudden church, 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 the church did this and the church did that. And, you know, and it, it becomes a thing. And then, uh, the believers, Starting in, a, in about chapter 8, they experience persecution and they get dispersed throughout Judea and Samaria. Remember, you know, Jesus said, you be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Well, that Judea and Samaria starts happening and, and wherever they go, they continue uh, sharing about Jesus. And we get people like uh, Simon the sorcerer and the Ethiopian eunuch that uh, we learn about. But uh, we also get introduced to this new character, Saul, in Acts chapter 7. 
who's one of the persecutors, holding the coats of people as they kill Stephen. But in chapter 9, Saul, uh, Saul becomes a Christian, and he begins to uh, follow Christ and pursue the calling that Jesus put in his life to, uh, to bring the word to Gentiles. In uh, Acts chapter 11, the church where Saul's at in, Anti- in Antioch is the first time we get the term Christian. So I guess if, if I'm a little nervous about church planting, uh, you know, what did Jesus say about Christians? Not much, right? Uh, <laughs> but Acts chapter 11 is not only the first time the disciples were called Christians, but it's also the first usage of church in the book of Acts, other than talking about the church in Jerusalem or the universal church. We we hear of the church in Antioch. And it's not until Acts chapter 13 that you get the first time that we're told that a church intentionally sends out people uh, to to other uh, places to tell people about Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch on their first missionary journey. And in the next couple of chapters, we read about them preaching the gospel and sharing Jesus in Cyprus, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And that's what they're doing. They're sharing the gospel. They do some healing you know, some other things, but there's no mention of church planting yet. But they return home to Antioch, and along the way, we're told that as they are heading back to their home church in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas revisited the disciples that they'd made so far and appointed elders for them in each church. So, Somehow, the result of this first outreach, this first sending out of missionaries, resulted in churches, multiple churches, where Paul and Barnabas, as they uh, passed through, appointed elders with prayer and fasting and committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So Luke was talking about preaching the gospel but kind of without being aware of it, just was assuming that the readers would know that he meant churches were being planted. Because he just uh, takes them for granted a little bit later. When people make disciples, or when people are Jesus' witnesses in obedience to the Great Commission, according to the book of Acts, according to the Bible, the result is, that new churches get planted, or if there's already churches there, they get bigger. All right? So that's, that's an observation, uh, you know, as we reflect on what's, uh, what is written, we can come to some conclusions that aren't explicitly written. And this, this connection is really apparent in Acts chapter 15, where Paul proposes to Barnabas that they go back and visit the believers 
in all the towns where we preach the word of God and see how they're doing. That's Acts 15.36. So again, Luke describes it as uh, visiting people where we preached. And then describing what happened, Paul went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening, not the believers, the churches. So, so this is what this is what's uh, what's happening, even if it's not being uh, explicitly stated. So I think when C. Peter Wagner said that the single most effective methodology, evangelistic methodology under heaven, is planting new churches, I think that's an understatement. Okay, I want to go a little farther than that. I believe that church planting is how the apostles responded to the Great Commission. And that church planting is the biblical strategy for spreading God's kingdom. This is what happened, right, after they they received that commission. Churches were planted. And uh, I, I think I am biased. I think, I believe that God put this passion for church planting in my heart, and, you know, that's that's biased, but I think I can I can defend that. That stands up. So, let me go back and, and talk some more about my own story as a church planter. Uh, pretty early on, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I realized, to my consternation, that I was not a great church planter. Okay? I mean, I could do it. I did it. I go. I uh, definitely wrestled with the the, the uh, things that need to be done and and the opportunities that people need to have and and all of that. But but uh, when I would bring somebody with me and teach them, they always were better than I was at it. And you know that was a little humbling. Um, uh, People that I trained in church planning, we we uh, uh, did informal training, and we went so far as to start a Bible school. and And I would teach church planning because on the teams I was at, I was usually the one with the most experience because I was just one step ahead. Planted one church, and then uh, uh, helped other people with the second one, and then the third, and and so I, I did a lot of teaching and. And some very talented, dynamic, successful church planners would tell me, Chris, I really appreciate, you know, how you taught us to do this and you taught us to have this attitude and to not forget that. And, you know, I I started to think maybe God put this passion for church planting in my heart and guided me to plant churches so that I could be a more effective trainer of church planters. Right? I needed to have the personal experience. I needed to have the passion to focus in uh, on that. And uh, so I begin to shift my focus uh, as a missionary from uh, I'm going to go out and plant the next church to I'm going to uh, train people that are going to go out and plant the next few churches. And uh, that that was very uh, very fruitful, and um, 
as we begin to multiply churches, this was confirmed for me because, you know, when you're when, when I was uh, young in ministry, money always seemed to be the obstacle that I had. You know, like you, you need funds to to fly over to a different country and to uh, you know get a vehicle and and travel and and you know some churches they want land and buildings and stuff and money seemed to be the obstacle but as i got more and more experience you know realized that you know what's really the obstacle is people getting uh people that are gifted and willing and available to god to be able to do that the church the, the world would be reached today with the gospel if you know every christian was 100% available and and ready to do whatever God called them to do. And so this confirmed for me that uh, that training and motivating and mobilizing church planters was a great way to go. I realized that a lot of Christian leaders were like me. And I'm going to back up and tell you what I mean uh, in this in this case. When I was a Bible college student in the early 80s, I took one or two classes on church planting. They weren't, uh, there weren't very many students in those classes. It wasn't a popular subject, but it was for me. And, you know, I had books that talked about church planting. And they just didn't, see, you know, I was still pretty nervous at the end of those classes. And even, and, uh, even after, uh, planting a church, I, I went to uh, Fuller Seminary and and heard from some of the the big gurus in church planting. And you know, it, a lot of that academic training was just too academic. It left me feeling okay. I I know some things to consider. You know, they suggest this and perhaps that. But when I'm sitting there trying to decide which, uh, which barrio or which town to go plant a church in next, they didn't have a lot for me or how to approach people or, or what model of church to pursue. And where I really learned to uh, plant churches was from uh, really through divine, uh, divine appointment as a brand new missionary, my wife and I moved to a town where we scouted out there were no there were there was no church planning or missions activity in this whole area. We moved to town and the same month we moved there, a veteran Southern Baptist missionary who'd been planning churches for over twenty years and his wife moved to the same town. And man, that guy taught me how to plant churches. He uh, very graciously shared his time, and, and I was down to the level of, well, what do I bring with me when I go tomorrow? You know, and, and you know, well, you bring two pieces of paper and a pencil. I say, well, what about Bibles? He says, no, you don't want to bring Bibles. He says, if they get dependent on you bringing Bibles, they'll never have enough. You got to get them to go buy their own Bibles. And, you know, and he just, I didn't understand why, but he helped me very, uh, in very solid, easy to understand ways, learn how to plant a church. And it was that kind of stuff that I was able to uh, pass on 
to others. Uh, so I began to uh, uh, train and mentor Filipino church planters and, and American missionaries as well, uh, based on that. And while I was uh, in, uh, you know, back in the states for a bit, going to uh, Mike's Sunday school class, that's the time one of my friends from Bible College invited me to a dynamic church planning international three day training event, and I was not interested. Because now I knew how to plant churches already, right? Uh, and uh, I had not been impressed with the church planting training that I had seen out there. So I assumed, as we are wont to do, I assumed that this would be more of that stuff and, and uh, didn't, didn't really need it. I was busy, had a lot of stuff going on. But my friend was persistent, and he was on staff at a church that supported us. And, uh, you know, it kind of behooved me to go. So so I went, and boy, I was glad I did. I came out of that, and I said to my friend Eric, I said, you know what, this, this three-day DCPI training was the training I wish I would have had back when I was in my early 20s, before I started the first church. It, they just had a great uh, biblical principle-based system that helped you to understand the phases that you had to go through, that the, uh, the uh, milestones of when you knew you were ready for the next, the next uh, phase and things you needed to accomplish. And it wasn't a specific model that was good for California, but not for the mountains of the northern Philippines, but they were... They were principles, and you could see, you knew, okay, I just have to accomplish this in whatever is the appropriate way based on the resources and the vision that we have. And it was driven by God, and so when you're trying to ask, you know, which town or which barrio, you, you know, you pray about it, and you, uh, you let God guide you, and, and sometimes God lets you pick, you know. Uh, and so it was great. I enjoyed it, went back to the Philippines, and uh, uh, our church planting uh, in our team accelerated because I began to use the DCPI uh, curriculum. And um, uh, by, by uh, 2010, when we left the Philippines, our church planting movement up in northern Luzon had stretched to at least four generations I I don't know if anybody has track of what they're at now, but but at least I knew and was able to document for myself that uh, we had planted churches that had planted daughter churches that had planted daughter churches of their own that had also planted daughter churches. And for, for uh, some people, experts, this is the definition of a church planting movement. And the fact that I don't even know what churches are out there now, you know, it's out of control. And uh, and part of what really accelerated that was was bringing in DCPI training, not only to train church planters, but in our area, these friends of mine that I'd worked with planting churches that had the experience, they began 
to be, they were equipped to be able to train other church planters as well. And so that has, uh, that's really multiplied. Well, in 2010, my mom was, uh, starting to, uh, decline. My wife's mother had health issues and my wife's brother that had been, uh, looking after had to move, uh, f- to, to keep his job. So we returned from the Philippines. And at that time, Dynamic Church Planning International asked if I would come uh, join them at their headquarters in Oceanside, California, which is uh, in San Diego County. So I joined DCPI, and the vision of DCPI is to equip leaders to plant 5 million churches to win the world for Christ. Wow. I don't even, I can't even picture five million. Uh, but we feel that that's a God-given vision. And, uh, you know, I was talking to uh, one of the brothers before the service today and saying, even now, I don't know how we're going to get there. It took 25 years for for DCPI to train the leaders that we believe planted one million churches, and we're trying to do the next four million in ten years, and we don't know how. And and you know this brother just wisely said, "Well, uh, you don't have to know how, right? If that vision's from the Lord, the Lord's going to do it." Amen. And that's that's uh, that's our attitude. We do our part, and. Uh, Enjoy what uh, what uh, God is doing so far, and I checked this this week in our in our database. Uh, we trained more than four hundred sixty five thousand leaders that have planted well over one million churches, and we believe that these uh, churches have brought well over forty million people who were not believers into a relationship. With Jesus, we we occasionally do research where we go into an area where we've trained and contact leaders that we trained three to five years ago, and find out what they've done. If they planted churches, how many? How many people are attending? How many of those were new believers and and this sort of thing? And then we we project, you know, make projections from that. So uh, you know, that's that's what I all I can vouch for is that. Uh, not that we've counted these people, but that that uh, if the people we didn't interview are like the people we did interview, this is what we what we expect. When I came to San Diego in 2010, DCPI was training about six to eight thousand leaders a year. Now we train tens of thousands of leaders a year, and our goal for 2023 is to train. 72,000 church planters. We have eight tracks of training. Uh, we have our that uh, biblical principle-based track that kind of walks you through the steps and the milestones that, that I took back in 2002 or whatever. Uh, plus, we, have a, we do a house church planting model that's seeing thousands of churches planted in one network every year in India, for example, and 
and has been introduced to other countries and just exploded. We have stuff for uh, teenagers. Uh, I've, I've heard multiple testimonies of teenagers that have planted churches, including in California. Um, our material is planted into, uh, is translated into 69 different languages. And our goal is to train in every country of the world, but so far we've trained in at least 182 countries of the world. And uh, the one that I'm praying for is North Korea. I've been trying to get us into North Korea for years and have not uh, succeeded. But I'm thanking God that we got into the Maldives this, this past year, 2022, that when uh, some of our Indian master trainers went there, they were not allowed to bring their own Bibles with them. Bibles are illegal in the Maldives, but you're allowed to use apps on your phone, so whatever. Uh, if, the, if someone in, in Maldives becomes a Christian, they lose their citizenship. And uh, so you're allowed to be a Christian if you're already a Christian or if you're a non-citizen, you can convert. But uh, it's really a tough place. And, and last year we were able to, to do training in there and, and people are planting churches there now. But, but uh, that, this, these are just small little snapshots of what's happening all over the world. Our, uh, uh, our training is not typically done by us in headquarters anymore. Uh, we have, we certify trainers like my friends from the Philippines. And some of those, they actually do train quite a bit. We make them master trainers, which means they can certify trainers themselves. And we have this whole network of, of really thousands and thousands of trainers who don't get $1 from DCPI. In fact, we tell them, when you train church planners, you are not allowed to charge anything for for what you do. Now, if if it's a three-day boot camp kind of thing and and you're, you're providing food, you can charge a registration fee that covers your costs. But nobody's to be making money from this or or getting their support from it. And so these are people that are pastors, missionaries, uh, churchgoers from many different denominations and networks and movements that that just feel called to to be involved in this way. And so that's where most of the training's hap- happening. Now my role as a uh, DCPI missionary initially in 2010, I was the Asia representative. I was responsible for coordinating the training and appointing trainers and master trainers and whatnot all over Asia. I'm talking South Asia, China, the North Pacific, Australia, you know, all over, all over Asia. Uh, at this point, m- most of that I've handed over to other people, although some of those leaders in Southeast Asia and India I continue to work uh, very closely with. But uh, I'm now a vice president of operations at headquarters in San Diego. So I help with strategic planning on the executive level, supervising our central office, supervise the director of accounting, supervise our director of human resources, uh, 
supervise our legal uh, issues when we have them, and uh, our missionaries as they raise funds. And a lot of this stuff I do, probably some of you do, for some company, you know, here locally. It's uh, it's not that not that uh, ministry, right? But you know, it's like when like the church. You know, a lot of the things your church leaders do here are the same kind of things that everyone has to do: bank accounts, you know, cleaning, uh, fixing leaks, maybe. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, some examples. Earlier this week, our executive team had a two-day in-service, and I was wrestling with the issue of how fast our departments can spend their budgets, given that our advancement team was behind in uh, fundraising. And and so, you know, you've got some reserves. Cash isn't coming in that fast. People want to spend ahead. When can they do it and stuff? And, you know, that's that's tricky. That's not stuff I ever thought I'd, I'd uh, end up doing. Um, but now I'm trying to predict how much some uh, foundations we haven't talked to yet are going to donate, you know, by September. And if anybody know, knows how to help me answer these kinds of questions, I am all ears. Um, so uh, we talked about our our worldwide network of of really unpaid. Uh, church planner trainers. Well, one of my tasks continues to be to connect with uh, dozens of these trainers. And uh, uh, we've received some complaints that some of our systems are broken, meaning they're really banging their head trying to do certain things that we're hoping that they'll do. And so I'm the guy that's got to talk to everybody, find out what systems exactly they consider broken, and then prioritize what are the ones that, you know, the Pareto principle of 80-20, what is the 20% of our systems that we could invest our time into to get 80% uh, impact because we don't have time to fix everything, right? We're we're just going top speed. And so uh, by the end of second quarter, Supposed we're trying to have identified what are the top ten issues that can be addressed and should be addressed, so that all of our uh, field staff, we call them these these trainers, uh, have the material they need. Uh, maybe get some financial help to cover travel as they go to other countries and other states or provinces and and do training. Uh, these sort of things. In July. I'm going to the Philippines. Uh, we'll have our top trainers from uh, Myanmar, Vietnam, Philippines, uh, maybe Korea, Australia, Fiji, Indonesia. They're all coming together there and kind of making plans with uh, with their actual situation, the resources that they have available, how we can multiply church planters in uh, Southeast Asia. Well, uh, my my ministry, to, to sum it up, has just been more satisfying and more fulfilling than I really ever imagined uh, it could be. I've 
got to learn new cultures, learn new languages. I've got to proclaim Jesus and see lives transformed, see entire communities impacted. Uh, I, I, again, I was talking to someone beforehand. You know how we all know how to we all know how to make babies, right? But we have no idea who these babies are going to grow up to become. And it's that way with church planting. You know, I could start a church again, but I have no idea what the Holy Spirit intends to do in that church and through those people. And, and it has been a privilege for me to watch what God does in uh, new churches. And uh, now I've been able to experience seeing denominations even here in North America that have been in decline that are growing again and, and, and the number of churches they have multiplying again. I've told you a lot of my story this morning and, and some of the thinking that is behind that uh, because I want you to, to know us. I want you to know Carol and I. I want you to think about us. I want you to pray for us, and I appreciate uh, you know that this church does things to keep keep your missionaries uh, in front of you, so that you can you can pray for us. Grace Grace Life Church supports uh, my family financially, and this means that we're partners in this ministry. You're the reason uh, that DCPI can train church planners without charging a dime because our needs are being taken care of by people like you. So thanks for that. You're the reason that uh, our kids have grown up in a third world country, not resentful about that, not resentful that their, their dad is gone sometimes for a couple of weeks at a time, but that they've been able to witness how God can work in some pretty uh, exciting ways. And for 37 years, they've seen that our family has been provided for by the Lord through ministry partners like Grace Life. And this testimony is probably uh, the reason why not one, but two of our children are missionaries themselves. Uh, our, our, by the way, my wife wants to make sure I let you know that that's a prop house. That's not our, that's not our actual home. All right. But our, our oldest son, Cormac, is a psychologist. He's, a, he's got a doctorate in psychology from a California university. But he and his wife, Sarah, have chosen to go and live in an unnamed Southeast Asian country because what they're doing is illegal there. But uh, their heart is to help missionaries stay on the field, provide, uh, provide therapy for, for couples, for families with children that have various uh, uh, kinds of mental, even disorders, to do testing and these sort of things, just to help support those uh, missionary families where they're in a high-stress situation and uh, don't have a lot of those networks. Our uh, second child, our oldest daughter, Caitlin, and her husband, and they're the ones with the uh, the granddaughters. They've got four daughters now. Um, 
their church planters in that same Southeast Asian nation. Aaron uh, planted a, a large international church, and, you know, probably half his members are not missionaries because that would be illegal. Um, but that church then provides uh, uh, resources and training and support to a lot of Indonesian, uh, sorry, you didn't hear that, and if this is recorded, I hope, you know, a lot of uh, uh, Southeast Asian church planters. And uh, my daughter was surprised when some of her uh, some of her friends in the community began to be mentored by her, and she ended up planting a house church. She didn't set off intending to do that. She was just doing some discipleship, but but created a church because the existing churches weren't really uh, their people. You know, they weren't. They needed a place where they were. They would feel accepted, and they could grow. And so my daughter ended up uh, planting a church for primarily uh, uh, women that that had been poorly treated in society. And in places like India, Venezuela, Kenya, even the U.S., uh, you know, as I said, we've done we've done research into the impact of all of this. And uh, if we do train 72,000 church planners this year, and if, uh, if those leaders are anything like the ones we've studied and interviewed, then the leaders that we just trained in 2023 are going to go on to plant more than 183,000 new churches in the next three to five years. And if those churches are like the churches that have been reported to us previously, then we believe that, uh, that within those, that next uh, five-year period, there will be more than 7.3 million new believers, people that some of them will hear about Jesus for the first time and will be saved uh, through these efforts. I want you to know this. So if you don't hear anything else, hear this today. That when you stand before our Heavenly Father, He will give you some of the credit for those 7.3 million souls. And how do I know this? The Apostle Paul sometimes worked as a tent maker to support his uh, ministry. But other, other times he accepted financial support from Christians and churches. And in Philippians chapter 4, he wrote in a letter to one of these churches that was supporting his ministry. He said, As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except only you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. So he was, he was uh, saying they would be recognized as 
uh, with, with some of the credit for what Paul was doing in places like Thessalonica. And I hope you, I hope you digest this. Together with uh, Christians from all over the world, uh, you and I are truly partners together in planting thousands of churches, reaching millions of new believers. In fact, uh, you know, it's really true, Mike, that you, you get credit for everything I do because you've, you poured into me, you know. Uh, this is, you know, I definitely know I take credit for everything my kids do, right? Uh, uh, sorry, I have to, you know, I have to defend that, but, but this is biblical. This is, this is what uh, uh, Christian partnership and Christian fellowship is about. Everybody doing their part so that the body of Christ is healthy and uh, impactful. So I just want to say to you, while I'm here with you in person, which isn't going to happen very often, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the financial support. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for the meal that we'll be sharing in a little bit. Thank you for your partnership. And uh, as, as uh, Mike mentioned, if any of you would like to meet with me personally tomorrow or Tuesday about anything, uh, there's a sign-up sign up sheet in the back you can leave your contact information and we'll figure out how we can uh, how we can get together to arrange things so let's go ahead and uh, have a prayer father i just want to start by thanking you for the the churches that have reached us some of them kind of young churches like grace life or maybe our our home churches from childhood long ago, but whatever, Lord, we thank you for the chain of witnesses through the centuries that have kept reaching the next generation right up to our barbarian uh, ancestors and and the, the new world here where we are now. Lord, thank you for equipping each of us with special roles in your body, the church. Thank you for the opportunity to have a part and uh, thank you that it doesn't all rest on our shoulders, but that the, we have others doing their parts as well. And uh, Father, I just want to say we accept your commission to be your witnesses. We hear your command to make disciples of all nations, and Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.